This is The Bottom Line, a show designed to help Australian businesses succeed. On the show, you'll hear from leading Australian business owners as they share the lessons they've learned building their companies. You'll learn from their successes as well as some of the challenges they've faced along the way. We also talk to experts from a range of fields who share specialised techniques you can use to improve your business. I'm your host, Savan Tuna, and I'm a director at Alexander Spencer, and I'm really passionate about helping Australian businesses succeed. Today on the show, we are speaking with Mike Ehrenstein, a named partner of Ehrenstein Sager, a law firm based out of South Florida in the United States. In the episode, we discuss what you need to know from a legal standpoint about conducting business on an international scale. You'll learn about the mistakes business owners make when expanding out of their own territory, common international legal challenges in today's environment, and Mike shares his 10 essential terms for those engaged in business internationally. Let's jump in. Hi, Mike. Thank you for joining me today. Thank you for inviting me. I'm delighted to share some time with you this afternoon. Well, I'm excited and the listeners would have picked up on the accent there. You're a named partner of Ehrenstein Sager. And if anyone didn't pick up on the initial question and the hello, you do have an accent. It is a law firm based out of South Florida in the United States. So look, before we get into law, business and all that kind of fun stuff, can you tell us about South Florida for all these Aussies that may not have been down that way? The Aussies that may not have been should all come. (laughs) We have a remarkably wonderful, diverse community. We have people from all over the world that show up over here. Everybody wants to live here lately. I mean, the housing market here is crazy right now, but we have people, New York, South America, Europe, Africa. We don't have many Australians. We should get some. So come on over. And we have wonderful dining, wonderful culture, great beaches. The diving is maybe not as good, and the surf is definitely not as good as it is in Australia, but it's a close second. We'll need to um, do another episode just on the little pitch for South Florida, but we'll dive right in. Tell me a little bit about your background and what attracted you to the legal profession. I'm the second son of Turkish immigrants, and when they came to the United States, it was a new opportunity. Well, actually, I was raised to be a doctor. But then I got into organic chemistry and realized that doctoring was not going to be for me. (laughs) So I realized that my mother in particular had imbued in me a certain sense of justice and fairness and the love of a good fight. When the time came to figure out what I was going to do after going to college, I went to college in Vermont called Middlebury College, great bucolic environment where I was surrounded by mountains and cows and ski slopes. And when it was time to leave that idyllic environment and join the real world, I got shoved a little bit by my (laughs) father who was saying, you're going to go to law school. And thank God he did because 35 years later, I've had a very fulfilling career. I've enjoyed some success. I've always enjoyed the fight. I'm glad my dad pushed me and I'm glad my mom gave me the genetic material to actually want this. That's how I got into it. Amazing. So you became a lawyer. How long ago was that? When did you graduate? I graduated in 1990. And when did you start the law firm? Because you did start that from scratch. Is that correct? Yes, I did. So I graduated in 1990. I worked for a 
mid-sized law firm in South Florida called Kluger Parrots. I worked for them for, I think, 17 years. I became a partner after about six or seven years. And then as my practice developed and as that firm grew, I realized I wanted to do my own thing. And so about 14 years ago, I started my own firm. Awesome. And we've worked really hard. We've been fairly lucky and we've done well. Fantastic. And what areas do you specialize in and maybe a little broader the firm specializes in? The firm in general is a business law firm. And so anything that touches on the fights that arise from business transactions, we will litigate or arbitrate those anywhere in the world. We do a lot of it here in South Florida, but we do some of it in New York. We've done it in California. We've done it in Ohio. We've done it in Israel. We've done it in Africa. So anywhere where there's a fight that's a good fight, that's a worthy fight, we'll go. I like it. You sound like a boxer. It sounds awesome. So (laughs) (laughs) in your bio, it says you're a trial lawyer. I don't know if we use that term in here in Australia. What does it mean by a trial lawyer? That's a good question. There's this sort of distinction drawn in practice. The reality is that there are lawyers that actually try cases that go to court and actually really know how to put in evidence and make an argument to a judge or jury. They know how to cross-examine witnesses. And there are lawyers that are actually better at litigating. Litigators are people that push paper, take depositions, and try to push the case into a position which ultimately will settle, but sometimes they fail and the settlement doesn't occur and they get stuck and they go, judge goes, well, now you're gonna to go to trial and they don't know what to do because they're not used to being in that environment. So a trial lawyer is somebody who can do all of the litigation stuff, get the case prepared, but is not only capable, but eager to get the case into the courtroom. Now, you offer services to clients that have international presence and international dealings. You have two interesting examples of cases that you and your law firm were involved in on your website, and it sort of drawed my attention. One was where you represented Republic of Angola, and the other was where you represented a minor shareholder of a national cement business in the Dominican Republic. Now, without divulging maybe some privileged information there, can you tell us a little bit about those specific two cases or what the stories were there and how you got involved? The Dominican Republic case was a case involving a minority shareholder who was squeezed out of a cement manufacturing business that was in the Dominican Republic. I was contacted initially in that case by the minority shareholders lawyer from the Dominican Republic because there was litigation that was erupting from that squeeze out that was taking place in Miami. There was litigation taking place in Panama, litigation taking place in Switzerland and in Spain. And all of these moving pieces needed to be a general shepherding which soldiers were going to go where and what arguments were going to be made in which forum. So I was contacted by his counsel, and that case was actually a very interesting case. It went on for years, and ultimately it got resolved. You know how I said before I've been a little bit lucky? A little bit of luck and a little bit of hustle, and the two of those things kind of come together. Initially, the Republic of Angola got sued over some allegedly breached energy contracts here in South Florida. And I knew they needed local counsel. So I reached out to the lawyer from Angola who had been representing them previously. 
and said, you're going to need local counsel here. I would like to throw my hat in the ring. That lawyer and I worked that case together and we did it successfully. And that case generated more cases where I've been representing the Republic of Angola in similar issues, but larger cases. There's one that's pending right now in New York where they were sued for over a billion dollars. We got that case dismissed a couple of months ago and it's presently on appeal. We'll see what happens. Well, there you go. You haven't been on like these fancy private jets with the Republican of Angola or anything like that? No, no, I'm not a (laughs) private jet kind of guy. (laughs) What were some of the things that could have been done in these cases by either party to get a better outcome or at the very least not end up in the courtroom? This gets sort of to my top 10 hits. So there's the top 10 important things that businesses can do up front that can save them a lot of heartache later. If you'd like, I can kind of run through that list with you to tell you a little bit about what I've learned over the years, over the last three and a half decades of doing this. <laughs> you do the same thing over and over and over again. And if you don't learn from it, <laughs> you're not doing your job if you're not protecting your clients with what you learn. Yeah, I would love for you to do that. It is one of my questions. So I might set it all up and set the scene and you can go ahead and, and give us that beautiful 10 pieces of advice. So you have presented at conferences and a lot of places as a keynote speaker around this topic. So let us know what could have been done in these transactions. And we do have a lot of companies that want to go global. And over a period of time, more and more my clients, either they export products overseas, they've licensed an agreement with some company in Europe, And potentially they're looking at having shadow offices, real offices, and it has become a global environment. I've learned that small businesses are really, really good at managing their business, but they're really, really bad at managing their risk. So what does that mean? I'll give you an example. I represented a client that had a large contract to ship goods from the United States to Puerto Rico after the hurricane had devastated Puerto Rico a couple of years ago, Irma. This was a company that had a fairly large contract. There was a lot of money that was flowing under this contract to get trucks and cranes and electrical wires and all kinds of important things to help the Puerto Rican people rejigger their infrastructure. And so this small business got its goods sent them over and sent them with an invoice. That was it. No major overarching contract with specific terms and conditions about how things were supposed to go. And if they didn't go the way they were supposed to, what was going to happen? It was, I'm selling you 50 widgets. You're paying me $50 and that's it. That's what shows up on an invoice. Here's your crane. You owe me $1,000. Here's your truck. You owe me $2,000. That was it. And that, for better or worse, is the way 90% of the sale of goods or services transactions occur, including overseas. Now, when we start a contract, at the beginning of this contract, it's the honeymoon. Oh my God, I'm going to have all of this revenue. It's going to be so wonderful. Look, here's your crane. Give me my money. Wonderful. It's a honeymoon. You think it's going to work exactly the way it's supposed to, but not Every marriage has a honeymoon that is going to last forever. Some marriages, unfortunately, end in divorce. And that's what can happen in these small business relationships if they're not properly documented. 
there are basic terms and conditions that businesses, especially those transacting internationally, ought to include or at least think through before entering into these transactions. There's this old saying from Ben Franklin that was, an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure. The top 10 list, here we go. Number one, if you're going to do business internationally, include terms and conditions or include a contract that specifically identify how you're going to resolve disputes. And it doesn't take a lot. You don't have to have a magnum opus 50-page contract to do this. It can be a short paragraph, but that short paragraph can save everybody time, effort, money, and a lot of heartache. So a dispute resolution clause says something like, in the event that there is a dispute arising from the performance of this agreement, that dispute shall be resolved And it has to say where, in front of whom, and how that process is going to work. It will be resolved by blah, blah, blah. So a few things that you need to keep in mind when you're drafting or thinking through what you want in that dispute resolution clause. The first is, who does it apply to? If I'm an Australian business and I'm selling software to a UK user, and we say in the event that there is a dispute, it will be resolved through some form of dispute resolution. Does it apply to just the company? Does it apply to the officers and directors of the company? Does it apply to claims that are made against contractors, subcontractors, or vendors of the company? All of those things are different possibilities. And if you want to have thought that through before you include it, who does this dispute resolution clause apply to? The second is what law? is going to apply. I'm in Australia. My laws in Australia are not the same laws as the laws in Miami or the laws in Angola. If I'm selling my software to Angola, are we going to apply my law, the Australian law that I'm familiar and comfortable with? Are we going to apply Angolan law, which is going to be very, very different? You got to choose the law. And when you're making that choice, it helps if you have a connection with somebody who can actually tell you, well, in Angola, the law is a little different and here's how it's different. One of the advantages that an Australian client might have in speaking with somebody like you, Seven, about I'm going to be selling to the UK. How is the UK law different? You have relationships because of your relationship with Abacus. You have relationships where you can pick up the phone and speak to other accountants and lawyers over there. Or if you're going to sell to the United States, you have lawyers and relationships here. So how is that law different and which one is going to be more advantageous to your client? The next choice you have to make, choose the parties that it's going to apply to is number one. Number two, choose the law. Three, where are we going to go fight? So if our honeymoon ends horribly, where is the ring? Are we going to fight in Melbourne or are we going to fight in Miami? And that kind of a little choice has a huge impact on the bargaining positions that people has as they're entering into the ring. If you're contracting with, let's say, Angola, and I say, okay, if we fight, we're going to fight in Angola. Come on into my backyard and fight (laughs) with me there and see how that goes. Same thing with Melbourne. If I'm a small U.S. business and I'm going to be litigating or arbitrating 
against a small Australian business, the relative cost to me of arbitrating or fighting over there is a lot higher than it is to the Melbourne company. So making a simple choice like that, which can be included in that one little paragraph dispute resolution clause, makes a huge difference. So number one, choose the people. Number two, choose the law. Number three, choose the place. Number four, choose the forum. What does that mean? Choosing the forum is all about, are you going to have a court decide this? Are you going to have an arbitration panel decide this? There are some people that end up saying, for example, we're going to have this submitted to a group of rabbis. (laughs) They're going to decide it. That doesn't happen, surely not. It does. (laughs) That actually happens. Not so much in the commercial context, but definitely in the family context that happens. You can choose by agreement up front, what is the forum? Now, if somebody's going to enter into a contract with me here in South Florida, I'm going to say, I want to make sure that every time, if there's any dispute, you have to fight with me here in South Florida, and you have to fight in the state or federal court that's in South Florida. I don't want to go to arbitration. Arbitration costs more money. It's less subject to review. There's there's reasons to choose arbitration and there's reasons to choose court. But you need to think through when you're making this dispute resolution clause, which forum? Do I want it to be in a courtroom? Do I want it to be in an arbitration? And if I'm going to do it in an arbitration, what rules are going to apply? Because there's probably a dozen, at least a dozen different arbitration organizations. So you can say, we're going to go and we're going to arbitrate before the American Arbitration Association. And we're going to follow the American Arbitration Association's procedural rules. You don't have to. You could say, I'm going to arbitrate this before the International Center for Dispute Resolution. Then they have a different set of rules. When you're making this decision, you should talk to your lawyer, talk to your accountant, and make sure you understand the wisdom and the folly of each choice that gets made. There's advantages and disadvantages to going to court. There's advantages and disadvantages to going to arbitration. And there's advantages and disadvantages to each of the different arbitral regimes that exist. And you can modify the rules. We're gonna go to arbitration and arbitration typically doesn't follow the rules of evidence. But in our case, we're gonna have the rules of evidence that are reflected in the federal rules of evidence of the United States. And that's what's gonna apply. You can choose that. Again, advantages and disadvantages to doing so. And you should be able to talk that through with your local advisor. So choose the parties, choose the law, choose the venue, choose the forum, choose the rules. Here's the next issue. Choose who decides who decides. So one of the things about have this conversation up front when you're entering into your agreement, it's almost like a little bit of a prenup, right? When you're in the honeymoon phase, you need to talk about what's going to happen if this doesn't work out. Not a very pleasant conversation, not a way to start the marriage off on the right foot, but let's be realists. When you have this conversation, I'm telling you, you save yourself tons and tons of time, effort, and money. The case that we were talking about before involving the Dominican Republic, one of the issues that became a huge barrier to resolution of that case was the parties 
were not in agreement on whether or not the arbitrators could decide the scope of their own jurisdiction or whether the court had to decide it first. Oh, no. What does that mean? So as in, is that the where they were going to fight? The where is the venue. The authority of the decider is what was at issue. Okay, so if I say any dispute which arises under or relates to our contract is going to be decided by arbitration, and then let's say we have a dispute that's sort of related to the contract but not arising under the contract, does that get subject to arbitration or is that something that's outside? Well, if you bring it to the arbitrators, the other side is going to go, hey, you can't let the arbitrators decide that. The court has to decide whether they have the authority to decide that first. So you have a whole lawsuit that you have to litigate and fight through before you get to the point where an arbitrator actually has authority to make a decision. Hundreds of thousands of dollars, actually millions of dollars, spent years dealing with that issue in state court and in federal court. And for what it could have been taken care of with a simple sentence in the terms and conditions that said, if we've chosen arbitration, we have elected that the arbitrators are entitled to decide the scope of their own authority. Or you could say it otherwise, if there's a doubt, it has to go to the court first. One way or the other, but say it, that issue is there, And if you can decide on one side or the other, but if you don't decide, it's a guarantee that you're going to end up spending time, effort, money, and tears. So choose the parties, choose the law, choose the venue, choose the forum, choose the rules, choose who decides who decides. (laughs) Another issue, choose who is authorized to grant provisional remedies. What's a provisional remedy? I'm sure you guys have something like this, but maybe you call it something else. In the United States and in other jurisdictions around the world, it's possible for a court, and in some instances, a properly authorized arbitrator, to grant relief to one party up front without the other side having a full, fair hearing yet in order to, for example, enjoin dissipation of assets or enjoin an infringement onto my intellectual property. That type of preliminary relief, who do you go to for that? In the context of a software transaction, he's using my software without my authority, without my license. I need to be able to stop him from doing that. I need an injunction now. And if I don't get that injunction now, he's copying that software and bootlegging it to somebody else, and I'm never going to see the end of it. I'm never going to get the benefit of it. How do I stop that from happening? I have to run to court, get an injunction, or I have to run to an arbitrator who has the authority because we've said it in our dispute resolution clause, the arbitrator has authority to issue provisional remedies. And sometimes these issues are dealt with in the rules that you've chosen. So if I've chosen to go to arbitration before the American Arbitration Association, And I'm looking at their rules. Their rules generally say that in most map, unless otherwise agreed, arbitrators have the authority to decide the scope of their jurisdiction. And some of this is subject to state laws. Some of it is subject to federal laws. Some of it is subject to international treaties. You've got to spend a little bit of time up front to figure it out in order to know what you want to go into your agreement or into your terms and conditions on your invoice. 
as savvy as small businessmen and small business women are about their business, they really are not that savvy about how to protect themselves from these types of exposures. And when you put it in front of them and explain it like this, like we are right now, you would think that the amount of investment that a business person is making in self-protection increases with the size and scope of their business agreements, right? In my experience, that's not so. I have to say the same thing. I see that a lot. They're like, oh, does this really need to be done? Or do we need to spend the time now? I just want to get the product shipped. And, oh, you know, if we put this agreement in front of this potential purchaser or buyer, that might change it or not sign it. And I wouldn't know if it's fear, but I do definitely see that, Mike, as well here. And it's not just T's and C's and terms and conditions and contracts. It's just generally there's this fear of, especially for small business that are earlier in their journey, dealing with international matters, especially in Australia. We just want to go global. We've got a very small population here. And the dream, especially for some of these scalable businesses, they want to go international markets. They want to go into the US. The US is the place to be. Crack the US, you've made it. And sometimes they get so excited by getting that product out there that they miss these little tiny steps and it could be the downfall of their business in the long term or short term for that matter. So it's that excitement that gets them, I think, Mike. I don't know what your experience is, but it's unbelievable. Two things that I've seen. One is from the small business who's about to launch into a global presence, they're itching to have the most frictionless upfront deal as possible. This is maybe not such a great analogy, but I keep going back to the honeymoon and the divorce. They're on their first date and they're just completely blown away by how wonderful their partner is. Like, oh my God, she's perfect. She's beautiful. She's intelligent. (laughs) She's everything I've ever wanted. And my mother will love her. Then you get to the reality. Six months later, things aren't so perfect. And what are you going to do? Spend a little time up front getting to know that person before you get into a serious relationship with him or her might save yourself a little bit of heartache and money. Same thing applies here. Spend a little bit of time. I'm dealing with one right now involving an international submarine cable. There's a really sophisticated big company on one side. There is a small business on the other side. And neither one of them, I mean, you would think that this is like big business. You would think that both of them would have spent the time, effort, and money up front to properly document their deal, and they didn't, neither one. And now they're fighting with each other. Yeah. And it's a disaster. I mean, for everybody, it's a a long, frustrating, expensive process for them. For me, it's joy. (laughs) (laughs) But for them, it's a long, frustrating, and expensive process that didn't need to be that way. If people had spent a little bit more time thinking through their documents up front. Now, before so, you go diving into the last three, I've got a quick uh-huh. question for you. You mentioned in that yeah. specific example with the submarine cable, you said either one party didn't think about how they were going to interact. When we're selling a product, I'm the seller, it's my software, it's my product, and I'm selling it. Is it the right. seller? that decides the law, the venue, the forum, the rules, and who decides that decides? Is it me or is it not a combination of both, but how does that play out? 
in theory, these are just other terms to be negotiated. Okay. You're going to negotiate over the price of your product. You're going to negotiate over the time that it gets delivered. You're going to negotiate over the quantity of delivery. You're going to negotiate over who's going to bear the risk of loss and who's going to pay for the insurance. You negotiate all those terms, but you don't negotiate this. That's in theory. In reality, if you're the seller and you include these terms, most of the time, there's not a lot of pushback. Most of the time, the buyer is eager to get your goods or your service and looks at all of this other stuff that we're talking about. Eh, it's just boilerplate. War. It's never going to happen anyway. They're in the honeymoon phase too. And I see with SMEs and small companies that we deal with predominantly here at our firm, that when they sell their product to a juggernaut or a listed company or something big, they get really excited thinking, well, one, I don't have the right to be able to put the terms and conditions and so on and really dictate terms. But I tell you what, what's interesting in when you talked about the choosing the law, choosing the venue, I was thinking about sport and I'm like, yeah. well, that's cheating. You get to choose the rules of the game. You choose where that's it's right. going to be played. You choose all these, you know, the, the referee that's going to referee you. I thought, well, that's cheating. But I guess for SMEs that are going to deal with these large corporates, they're never going to win. That's right. Right? Because they, they don't right. have the money. So if they've at that's least right. done the front end and at least balanced up the game so that it's a little bit in their favor. This is business strategy. I like to fight, not just in court, but it's something that I've grown up with. I've okay. always been involved with the martial arts and it informs the way I look at a lot of these issues. There was a great warrior in Japan a gazillion years ago who used to say that it's important to show up early to the battleground, wherever it is, so that you can get a lay of the land. You can know where the pitfalls are. If you get to think this stuff through up front, it gives you a huge advantage. I know you and I are going to fight. I'm going to say, you know what? I know this guy likes to drink a lot at night. <laughs> I get to pick the time we fight. I'm going to say we have to fight at seven o'clock in the morning on a bright sunny day when it's really hot. And I'm going to say, we're going to have to fight in front of a roaring crowd of a hundred thousand people screaming in his ears. And I get to say that, you know what? Our fight it's not just hands and feet. There's no rules. You didn't know the rules? I get to have a pistol in my hand. <laughs> you still want to fight with me? Okay, so if you're choosing the rules and you're choosing the place and you're choosing the law and you're choosing who gets bound by all of this, you're effectively controlling the fight before the fight ever happens. Yeah. And that is a huge advantage. And like you said, it does level the playing field a little bit. We got to who decides who decides, provisional remedies. This is an important one, the seat. If you're going to arbitrate, there's what they call the seat of the arbitration. You have to choose the substantive law of a particular jurisdiction that is going to manage the arbitration. The arbitration laws of which country or state are going to apply. If you don't do that, you can have an arbitration that occurs, as happened in Nigeria. There was a Nigerian gas facility that was supposed to have been built over a certain time. It wasn't done. The owners, the Nigerian country, got into a fight with the contractor who was supposed to build it, the, and they basically got an award for $9 billion. Now, $9 billion 
It's a lot of money, even to a country like Nigeria. It's a lot, a lot, a lot of money. So Nigeria turned around and said, but you guys, this arbitration took place in the United Kingdom and it was supposed to take place here in Nigeria. And our laws in Nigeria say that you can't have an arbitral consideration of this type of a dispute, which involved, among other things, a tax issue. Well, whose law got to control? Nobody said it. So the UK court said, well, the arbitration took place here. We're going to apply UK law, and we're affirming this $9 billion award. Horrible. Terrible, terrible, terrible for Nigeria and for its people. I don't know whether the $9 billion was justifiable or not, but it sounds like it could have been avoided with a little more forethought. Yeah. And you would think that if you're a country like Nigeria entering into this kind of an agreement, you're going to spend the time, effort, and money to get it done right and to make sure that somebody decides and agrees the seat of our arbitration is going to be here in Lagos. Well, that's not what they did. That's one. The next one is to figure out if you want to maximize or minimize damages. There are contractual terms that you can include in your terms and conditions on your invoices or in your contract that say things like, well, if you use my software, and as a result of using my software, you suffer horrible losses, that your damages are limited to the cost that you paid me for the software. Or going the other way, you could say, look, I'm buying some software and I want to make sure that no matter what, this software better work and it better work on time because if it doesn't, I'm going to lose business opportunities. I'm going to have lost profits. I want to make sure that we're in agreement. You know up front, if you don't deliver, I'm getting a crack at all of that. So think that through. If you're the seller, you definitely want to be doing things to limit the damages. And if you're the buyer, you want to be thinking about how am I going to open it up so that I can get a larger award in the event that there's a breach here. Last of my top 10. You guys have David Letterman over there. You remember? Uh, I was probably a little fella, but I I love David Letterman. He was good. I did enjoy that. He always had these top 10 lists. The top 10. That's right. this is my homage to David Letterman. <laughs> the last one, number one. Is there a bit? There was a drum roll and and the whole dance, and you get all excited. Right. Yep. The last one, choose the right team. All of this stuff that we've been talking about, having a dispute resolution clause that identifies and addresses each one of these issues, is great, but it's worthless if it's not put together by the right team. So what is the right team? The right team is your advisory accounting professional who can help you analyze your exposures and help you understand the values. And the right team is the lawyer who is familiar with the rules and laws that might be applicable and knows how to draft around these things. So any Australian small business that wants to be doing business on a global scale really needs to think this stuff through. We're not talking about a huge investment of time, effort, and money, but the savings later on, if you go and you have seven or one of his colleagues working on this to put it together for you, the savings are going to be enormous. And likewise, especially seven wants to have some of his customers want to come here, do work to sell to the United States. You better have somebody in the United States that can tell you if you're going to be in Florida, these are the considerations that you've got to worry about. 
and anywhere else in the world. I guess one of the great things about being part of Abacus is that we can comfortably and reliably know that we can have our team developed in an instant to do business just about anywhere in the world. Yeah. And for our listeners that don't know what Abacus is, uh, Alexander Spencer is part of an international body or a group that formed out of sort of accountants and lawyers and we're a membership group and we work together to help our clients and your law firm is part of that group and that's how we met and it's an awesome resource for us to be able to leverage that so we definitely like that but Mike outside of Abacus and your business how how do people reach you so I mean they could call me for Australian clients but we get listeners that aren't clients of our practice how do they reach you? Anybody can reach me through email. I guess I'm old school. I still haven't picked up TikTok and Snapchat and Twitter, but you can reach me by email, mike at erinsteinsager.com. That's E-H-R-E-N-S-T-E-I-N, Sager, S-A-G-E-R.com. Or you can just call me. My phone number is 305-503-5930. And I will tell you truly, as much as I like to talk about, yo, I'm a fighter and I like to nerd out on this stuff a little bit. I love talking about this stuff. Anybody who wants to call and ask any questions about this, I'm available. I don't mind spending time talking about yeah. it. Yeah. And the you're 10, the, you've done an amazing job really simplifying the rules and the things that you need to do. And I have to say, like a lot of businesses don't think about this stuff. They get excited to go global and it really pays dividends and pays to get this stuff right. So Mike, I want to thank you so much for your time today. Enjoy the rest of your evening. You've provided our listeners with some amazing and very valuable insight. So I want to thank you for your time. Thank you. It was my pleasure. I really enjoyed the conversation and I look forward to seeing you in person. This is The Bottom Line, a show designed to help Australian businesses succeed. This podcast was produced by accountancy firm Alexander Spencer. At Alexander Spencer, we've been helping business owners realise their goals since 1952. And we play a pivotal role in developing, implementing and supervising the business goals and strategies of our clients. To find out how we can help your business succeed, head to our website, alexanderspencer.com.au. To make sure you don't miss an episode of The Bottom Line, be sure to subscribe to or follow the show in your podcast app. And while you're there, leave us a five-star review. It really helps others find the show. I'm Savan Tuna, and we'll be back next episode with more tips to help you transform your business. And that's The Bottom Line.